0: The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capitol Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capitol Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm going to read beginning in verse 19. The woman said to him, Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he." In her reply to the Lord Jesus, this woman introduces what I think is the most comprehensive section of Jesus' teaching on worship in the Gospels. In other places, Jesus will talk about aspects of worship. Talk about baptism and Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper and Sabbath keeping and so on and so forth. But here, Jesus gives an entire theology of worship. And what he says and what he unpacks with this Samaritan woman is so important that I think we need to unpack it over the next few weeks because this is the apex of Christianity. This is why we were created, is for worship. God made you to worship. And just in the background, the historical details, you'll remember, Jews and Samaritans did not mesh together. The Samaritans were essentially uh, Jewish half-breeds. They, they had been left over uh, after the Assyrian invasion in the north, and they had intermarried with all the, the other peoples there. And so they did not have good relations with Jews and they did not worship in the same place. So there's all sorts of tension. And furthermore, uh, men and women did not engage each other publicly like Jesus is doing with this Samaritan woman. And so if you remember, he comes, he asks for a drink, and then he offers her living water. And by living water, he was referring to the ministry, the inner working ministry of the Holy Spirit in her heart. And we covered that last week. And of course, that just flew right over her head. She didn't understand what he was talking about. She says, if you look at verse 15, she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she doesn't understand. So Jesus puts... His finger on the spot, he says, okay, this is the real issue. The real issue is that you have sin blinders on. And that, by the way, is everyone's issue before they come to Christ, is that we're blinded to Christ and to the Lord by our sin. Jesus says, go, fetch your husband, bring him here. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you say, Riley, you don't have a husband, but actually you've had five husbands. And in the, in the man that you're living with now is not your husband. So she's living in fornication. She's living with a man whom she's not married to. And in response to that, it's really interesting. She doesn't, she doesn't even really seem to bat an eye. If you look at verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And so Jesus now takes this opportunity, and it's really fascinating. It's really evan- evangelism by worship explanation. When was the last time you had an evangelism conversation where it was about the explanation of worship? But that's what takes place here. Worship, like I said, is the main thing. It's the big thing. How many of you watched a football game yesterday? Quite a few of you. What's, what's the most important thing in a football game? What's the most important thing? Okay, I think I've heard a number of things. The quarterback, the quarterback, that's true. The coach, scoring touchdowns, you know, people would say a good defense. Uh, the most important thing in a football game is the ball. <laughs> you can't play a football game without the ball, last week we were playing nine square with our students. We built this elaborate nine square thing uh, Tim did out of PVC pipe and all this stuff. And we showed up and then all of a sudden we were like, hey, did anybody bring a ball? Can't play without a ball. Worship is the ball in the Christian life. It's that main thing that we were created for. And the sad thing is, is most people on this earth don't know that that's the reason why they're here. In fact, I think many Christians don't know that that is the reason why they're here. And the reason for that is we have a very man-centered Christianity in this country. It's very man-focused, and it's not very God-focused. Where often the main questions that people ask are, are my needs being met? How, how is this working for me when I go to church and, and, and when I go to this Christian event? How, how am I being fed? That's often the main question. How are my preferences being satisfied? Whereas true Christianity is always God-centered. Is God being honored? Is God being worshiped properly? Paul says this in Romans eleven thirty-six. 36. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. It's Everything is from him, everything is for him, and everything is to him. To him be the glory. So this morning we're going to embark, and, and we're just going to spend the next few weeks talking about Jesus's theology of worship, because it's that important. It's so important. And I don't know how many principles we'll get through this morning that Jesus unpacks, but but let's, let's see. Uh, the first principle I want you to see is the universality of worship. The universality of worship. If you look at what the woman says in verse 20, look at verse 20. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And by that mountain, she's referring to a mountain called Mount Gerizim. It's where the Samaritans had worshiped for 500 years. And she says, but you say that in Jerusalem, talking about Mount Moriah, or the Temple Mount, is "is the place where people ought to worship. I want you to circle or underline in your Bible or jot down that word worship. It's translated in the ESV, most Bibles, as worship, but that's not the exact precise meaning. There's another Greek word that's often used to translate worship. This word is the Greek word proskuneo, and it literally means to bow down, to be prostrated on the ground. That's what it means. And English translators often, it is an act of worship, but that's specifically what it's talking about. It's to be faced down, to be brought low before someone or something else. There's a Hebrew counterpart to this word and it's used often in the Old Testament. I'll give you a few examples. In Psalm 29.2, the psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bow down to the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Psalm 95.6 says, O come, let us prostrate ourselves and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Let us literally just get as low as we can before God. That's what the psalmist is saying. Saying it, bow down, prostrate ourselves, be on your face. Uh, when Abraham and Isaac went to the temple mount in Genesis 22, they tell their servants, Abraham says, we're going to go up on the mountain and we are going to Histahwah. That's the Hebrew word. We're going to bow down. We're going to bow down and worship God. When Solomon dedicates the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, Literally, the, the Hebrew text says that they put their nose to the ground. And the same thing, they bowed down before God. When the Jews came back into the land after the exile, after the Babylonian exile, when Ezra stood up, this is Nehemiah 8:6, 6 to read the book of the law, the people hadn't heard the law of God in years and years and years. It says that the people of Israel bowed their heads in histahawab. They prostrated themselves before Yahweh, before God, and worshiped. Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 9:6, he says that the host of heaven, same Hebrew word, is bowed down before God. Bowed down before God. But it's not just to God that people bow down to, is it? All throughout the Old Testament, you see examples of people bowing down to other things. Just one example would be Isaiah 2.8. Isaiah says, their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So, I want to emphasize this bowing down because I really think it gets to the heart of what worship is. And that's why it's translated with that word worship in English. But this bowing down is this posture of showing that God is great and comparatively you are not. It's this posture of showing the greatness and honor In glory of God. Matt Redman came out with a song. This is almost 20 years ago. Nobody sings this song anymore. We should sing this song. But the song is called Face Down. He says, who is there in heaven like you? And upon the earth, who is your equal? Far above highest of heights, we are bowing down to exalt you. And I fall face down as your glory shines around. Yes, I'll fall face down as your glory shines around. God, I'll fall face down as your glory shines around. And really, that's what all of the Christian life is to be. Worship isn't just something that you're doing this morning. All of the Christian life is to be an act of worship, right? that's Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable and pleasing to him. All of the Christian life is to be lived quorum Deo, remember that? Latin, before the face of God, bowing down to him. That's it. That's, that's why you're here. And and so I think that helps bring perspective of what this Samaritan woman is saying. What she's asking is, where are we supposed to bow down? We've been bowing down on this mountain. You say you're supposed to, to bow down on that mountain in Jerusalem. Where are we supposed to bow down? How are we supposed to bow down? What are the particulars of worship since you are a prophet? And I think one of the insights that we can glean from this, and if you think about it, is that bowing down and worshiping is the universal activity of mankind. It's the universal activity of mankind. God created us to bow down to him in worship. We are creatures created to be in awe of a creator. So what this means is, is that Everywhere you go, whoever you meet, you are meeting a worshiper. You are meeting someone who bows down to someone or something. It's either the one and true living God or it's something else. But you are meeting a worshiper. And I want to show you this. I want you to turn to the left to, or excuse me, to the right, not to the left, to the right to Romans. So, Romans chapter 1, this principle of universal worship is so clearly spelled out by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. I just want to briefly walk you through what he says, beginning in verse 18. And I just want you to see one, how God created us to worship, and two, how. Either you're worshiping God or you're exchanging that worship for something else, okay? So he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now verse 19 is so important. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Oh, really? How has God shown it to us? For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where? In the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. What Paul is articulating is what theologians refer to as natural theology. You hear that word, nature in natural. And what natural theology asserts is that you can understand and know that God exists and you can see his qualities and his attributes in nature itself. That there are actually two forms of revelation. There's special revelation, which is the Bible, And there's natural revelation, and that's God revealing himself through the things that he's created, right? So Psalm 19.1 says what? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. They're, They're testifying to the reality of Almighty God. So wherever you go, whatever you see, all day, every day, what you are experiencing is the testament that there is an almighty creator God. There are no real atheists. A fool says in his heart there is no God. That's the, the one verse dedicated to atheism and scripture. You, you get, go on a cruise, you see the, the power of the oceans, you go and you see the majesty of the mountains, you see the grandeur of the stars. I remember one time I, was, I did Boy Scouts when I was in junior high, and we went to Philmont Scout Ranch. We were in Dallas, we were a bunch of Dallas City boys, and we just started driving west to Philmont Scout Ranch, and I remember we on the way we stopped at this state park out in West Texas, and we uh, just laid out our sleeping bags. We all just slept on a big tarp underneath the stars. We didn't have, we didn't, we weren't using tents or anything. And I remember we were just stunned seeing these stars because in Dallas, you just, it's just all city lights the stars display this grandeur and majesty of God. You see it in, in everything from the stars to the human eyeball to the way our vascular system works to the diversity of fish in the sea and birds in the air. All of it proclaims the handiwork of God. And all of it is meant to culminate in our bowing down before God and worshiping him. All of it is. That, that's why God created it. God, God put his majesty on display so that you would worship him. But look what he says. He says in verse 18, look what, look what we do naturally in our sinful state. At the end of verse 18, he says, By their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. So the truth is clear. The truth is plain. God has spoken in creation. The problem is not in creation. Who's the problem with? It's us. We distort it. We suppress it. We malign it. And then if, if you skip down to verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, I mean, God is so clear in how he's revealed himself, He says they did not honor Him as God. Honor Him means that you did not feel the weightiness of God. You lived life as if God didn't exist. You've seen what God's created, but you ignore it. You you refuse to honor Him. You refuse to give thanks to Him. If you knew that God created you, you would give thanks to Him for the breath in your lungs. If you knew that God created the earth, you would thank Him for clean water. You would thank him for the things that he provides, but they don't. They don't give thanks to God. But rather, look at the contrast. They become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they suppress the reality of God in their conscience, and God just gives them over to that. And in your soul, it becomes darker and darker, more compressed, more compressed, more compressed. And you refuse to acknowledge the reality of God. And claiming to be wise, they became fools. Do you want a diagnostic of what's taking place right now in Western culture? It's right there in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You know what a fool is? It's someone who refuses to acknowledge God. That's what a fool is. It doesn't mean that you're dumb intellectually. It means that you're dumb theologically. You refuse to acknowledge God. What do they do? Verse 23 is so important. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of Resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. In other words, they stop worshiping God, and start worshiping the things He's created. Are people still doing that? When was the last time you were on Instagram, or so any social media site? Like people are worshiping all the time. They're just not worshiping God. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst, among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and look at this, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. So it's, the, it, it's an exchange taking place. It's not that people aren't worshiping. It's just that they're not worshiping God. What we are experiencing today is not a lack of worship, but a corruption of worship. Everywhere you look, a defilement of worship. We live in a culture where people are bowing down to gods of sex, pleasure, wealth, fame, success, ambition, everything else except God. And, you know, people aren't. Literally posturing themselves on their knees before these things, but they're posturing themselves before these things in their heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Out of the heart, the life springs, the life flows. John Calvin said that naturally speaking, our hearts are idol factories. Idol factories. That in our hearts, we produce idols. We bow down to idols. And so this is taking place everywhere. It's universal. Universal worship. So that's the first principle I want you to see this morning. The second is the object of worship the object of worship. Look at verse 21. I want you to notice the emphasis of Jesus, what he says in his response to the woman in verses 21, 22, and 23. And notice specifically what he says about the object of our worship. Verse 21 first, Jesus says, basically, your your question is irrelevant because I'm ushering in a, a new type of worship, a new epoch of worship, but he says, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship who? The Father. The Father. God, he says, is the object of our worship. Then look at the next verse, verse 22. He says, You bow down or you worship to what you you do not know. Who's he talking about? God the Father. He's saying, you don't act you say that you worship God, but you don't actually even know who he is. You're not, you're not, you're, you're worshiping a God that you don't know. Then he says about the Jews, he says, we bow down to what we know. He says, We know God because we go, we know who he is through the scriptures. For salvation is from the Jews. We know in the scriptures the character of God is revealed. The promises of God, the covenants of God, the festivals that God has ordained, the sacrifices, the worship, all those things reveal the character of God to us, whom the Jews were to worship. Now look at verse 23. Notice the same emphasis, but the hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, the Father, in spirit and in truth. That's this new epoch of worship, this new era of worship that Jesus is ushering in when people will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I know this seems so obvious that the object of our worship is supposed to be God. But we're in a day where we have to emphasize the obvious and remind ourselves of this reality that God and God alone is to be the object of our worship period, the end. It's not just that we're supposed to worship God. It's that we are to worship nothing else or no one else. Remember the, when Moses gave the Ten Commandments, God said, first commandment, Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 24 You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Listen to this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. We're not to bow down to anything else, nothing else. God will not share his worship with anything or anyone. I remember when I was stationed over in Japan, we were out was touring in a village in mainland Japan with one of my fellow marine officers who claimed to be a Christian. And we we knew some Japanese locals because we were we were stationed over there and we went into their house and they had a uh, basically a household god in this room. And they proceeded to invite us to worship this household God. And the officer that I was with proceeded to begin literally to bow down and worship this little statue. And I just knocked him. I said, what are you doing? You're worshiping a statue. It's an idol. He said, yeah, but if we don't worship him, we won't be accepted by him. You know we'll offend him. We have to worship this thing; otherwise, we'll offend him. It doesn't matter. We're we're to worship God. That's it. Amen. Parents, there's a story in the Old Testament. Story of three men: Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And you ought to be teaching this story to your kids all the time because it will train them and equip them in this culture and in this story the king nebuchadnezzar built a statue of himself do you remember this and he declared he said i want everybody to bow down and worship the statue and these three jewish boys said no so when it came time to bow down and worship the statue they didn't they stood there they refused They were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said, you will bow down, otherwise you're dead. You're going into a furnace. They refused. They didn't bow down. They stood there. So what happened? They put them in the furnace. The furnace was so hot, even the guys putting them in the furnace were burned up. But they weren't burned up in the furnace. They walked. There was a fourth Figure that appeared in the furnace, the angel of the Lord, God Himself protecting them. And Nebuchadnezzar called out, He said, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, come out from there. And they came out, and their clothes weren't even singed, unscathed. Nebuchadnezzar said, We got to start worshiping this God. all because they refused to bow down to what everybody else was bowing down to. And children, that's going to be the challenge for all the years of your life. People are going to say, you need to, you need to do this. You need to stop going to church. You need to stop worshiping on Sundays. You need to stop saying that marriage is between a man and a woman, so on and so forth. There's going to be hundreds of things that this culture is going to tell you what you can and cannot believe. And what you're going to have to do is say, I refuse to bow down to anyone else but the Lord Almighty. It's Him where to worship. That's it. God and God alone. And what that means is is we worship the father you know that's what jesus is saying you worship the father but what is that, what else does jesus say in john's gospel he says i and the father are one so the son is also to be the recipient of our worship right and you see this at the end of matthew's gospel when jesus is on the mount of olives what are the disciples doing they're worshiping they're worshiping the lord jesus And not only do we worship the Father and the Son, but we also worship God the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Philippians 3.3, we worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. So we worship all three persons of the Trinity. All three persons are God, a very God. And so if I might just say something here. The problem with the Western church today is that we have made worship about ourselves and not God, okay? I'm just, uh, this is the big problem. And it's even manifested, this, this is just the air we breathe. And let me just give you an example, okay? And, and I'm guilty of this as well, so I'm not just pointing the finger at you, I'm pointing the finger at me. When you leave a worship service, what do you talk about? You're on your way out. You're like, oh man, I really loved that guitarist today. Or, oh, I really didn't like that song that we sang. That preacher, what'd you think about him? He went too long, didn't he? It was so long. He just kept talking. He could have ended it. He just kept, kept circling the plane. It was like, all right, are we are going to finish? Kept going. I love that illustration. He told that was so great. It was so funny. Wasn't it wasn't, oh, I laughed. It was funny. What are, what are we doing? Subtly, we've turned worship into something about us. The primary question, and I'm not saying that you can't talk about those things, but the primary thing that you should be asking is, was God satisfied in our worship this morning? That's what matters, right? I I mean, you go to these little country churches, I guarantee there's little country churches all over America. You know what? The music's probably not that great. Maybe the preaching isn't all that great, but man, They're worshiping God with their hearts. God accepts that. He loves that. And we might drive away and say, man, that was pathetic. But you know what God says? I loved it. And you go into churches and everything's programmed and everything's nice. And, you, you know, you got a little ticking clock and everybody does everything on the right time, the right meter. Everybody looks nice. We don't put anybody up on the platform who doesn't look nice. We say, oh, man, man, that was great. But God, man, he doesn't look on outward appearances. He looks at the heart. So we've got to get this right. We have to remember that God is the recipient of our worship. I'll say one other thing about this. Because Again, this is the air we breathe and the culture that we are. And, you know, this, you go to visit other churches and all these things. Uh, America has made a religion out of catering worship to unbelievers. It's called seeker sensitive worship, where we say, what we're going to do. Is, is we're gonna dumb down the teaching. In fact, we're not really gonna have a sermon. It's just gonna be a few anecdotes about how to improve your marriage or be a better businessman, be a better financial manager. And we're gonna sing, not Christian songs, but secular songs. Why? Because that's what unbelievers like. What's the emphasis? It's not on God. It's on felt needs, taste that people have. Now, we should be concerned about our audience. Very concerned. But who's our audience? We have an audience of one, and it's God. I don't care if every I don't care if the whole world shows up and they walk away from our worship and said that stinks. But if God says it's acceptable and worthy and honorable, it's a win every day and twice on Sunday, morning and evening. So, I mean, I I think this is the big problem. You know, people, people are coming to worship and what really is taking place is they're bowing down to their needs and their desires and they're not actually bowing down to God. I'm just put. I'm just speaking as plainly as I can. If you come to worship and you're like, "What? How is this doing something for me? Are you even? Are you bowing down before God? No. God sees that, and He doesn't accept that. God says, "I have to be first place in your heart." Remember, you know Jesus said, "What's the first commandment?" He said, "Love the Lord with all your heart." all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So friends, we have to remember who it is that we are here to worship. And we can't forget that it's all for him, all of it. And my prayer and desire is that when you come here in all of life, you know, we we sang that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The best way to keep worshiping God all the time not yourself, is to keep your eyes on Him. And so, my prayer is when you come here that you would actually encounter the Lord and the Word, the songs, the prayers, everything, and that your eyes would turn from yourself to Him. And, and, and you know, it's we're honoring God, but, but also that's actually what you need the most. All, we are so inclined to look at ourselves. What you need to need the most is to look at God because then your soul is satisfied. God designed worship when you look at him and gaze upon him. Not only is he honored and magnified, but that's when your soul becomes satisfied in him. So that's the object of our worship. We've covered the university, universality of worship, the object of worship, and then I think lastly this morning, we'll cover the mediator of worship. The mediator of worship. There's an important psalm. I encourage you to go read it, read it this week. It's Psalm 24. And Psalm 24 is about worship in, in the Old Testament. And the psalmist says in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Talking about who's going to come up to the temple, the tabernacle, and worship. And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. So not only does God require us to bow down before him in all of life, all of our worship, and not only does he require us to worship him and him alone, God requires us to worship him with clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. And so what the psalmist is saying is unless you're perfect, unless you're sinless, God will not accept your worship. God will not accept your worship unless you're sinless. Can anybody claim to be sinless here? No. No. And that's why a mediator had to come. Because the way that God accepts your worship is when you are clothed in the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have a high priest in heaven who has purified us in our worship is piercing through him to God. And then God can accept it. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about. If you look at verse 23, he's saying, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says earlier in verse 21, they are no longer have to worship on, on this mountain or that mountain. Why? Because Jesus... When he died on the cross, remember, the temple veil was torn. What was happening was, is Jesus saying, now you don't have to go to the temple to offer true worship. You have to come to me. You have to come to me to give praise and honor to God. And that's why Jesus, at the end of this passage, if, if you look at verses uh, 25 and 26, um, the woman asked him, she says, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He's saying, look at me. I am the Messiah. I'm this, I'm this anointed one who was promised to come. I'm, the, I'm the, the one that Isaiah prophesied about that was going to lay down his life for the people. Real quick, I think we have time, very briefly. Let me show you this from... Two other passages in the New Testament. Turn uh, to the right again to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 19, he says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence, confidence, you as a sinner have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, literally through him. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So this is full assurance that God accepts our worship. He says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That's a life of worship. In other words, all of life, we know that it's acceptable to God through this mediator, our act of worship. And then look, verse 25, it's not just all of life. What else is it? It's our corporate worship as well not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's Hebrews. Now turn to the right again to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter essentially says in so many words the same thing. He says, As you come to him... This is our mediator, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, listen to this to offer spiritual sacrifices. It's worship, acceptable to God through who? Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm bringing in this new era. I am bringing in this this phase of redemptive, redemptive history where I am the mediator and the only mediator. And when you worship through me, then God will accept your worship. That's what he's saying. Now, just one real quick implication of this. What this means is, is that You can only worship God in an acceptable way if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand this? All other worship, God refuses to accept. So Martin Luther, before he was converted, he went to Rome, and they have these steps there in Rome that people go up on their knees, groveling the whole way, and he did that. It's before he trusted Christ in faith, God refuses to accept it. Thousands of people go to churches and worship, but they aren't trusting Christ in faith. God refuses to accept it. The Jews this morning at the Wailing Wall, praising, worshiping God, they're not worshiping through a mediator, so God refuses to accept it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to who? the Father, except through me, except through me. There's no other way. And so this is so important for you this morning, friends. If you are not clothed in the blood and righteousness of Christ, then you have yet to enter into the main thing that God created you for. And you aren't worshiping God truly or rightly. You have to come to Christ in faith as a beggar looking for bread and say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I need a mediator to go to God. you got to humble yourself. That's the problem. Most people don't want to humble themselves. They say, God accepts me. I'm a good person. I'm a great person compared to those people. I look good. I do good things. I give to the poor. I don't break laws. I'm a good person. No, you're not. You've sinned before God, and you have to humble yourself and go to the mediator, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, and only then, will God accept your worship. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at CapitalCommunityChurch.com.